We're going to be in Psalm 84 this morning. Uh, Scott and I didn't talk about this ahead of time, but he read from one of the other psalms that were written by the sons of Korah. And our psalm for this morning, Psalm 84, is a psalm written by the sons of Korah. I'm pretty sure I preached on that one you read this morning, Scott. It sounded familiar, but short-term memory banks are not good. And if it was a long time ago, I'd remember really well. But right now, um, since it wasn't that long ago, I don't remember that well. I'm going to talk about the sons of Korah in a moment. But um, before we do... As I was studying this, I came across a quote by Spurgeon. Some of you know who Charles Spurgeon was. He is referred by many as to as the referred to as the Prince of Preachers, and uh, considered to be one of the best preachers of all time. I personally, I hate to say this, but I have never been a guy who connects with Spurgeon. I've read his sermons. Uh, I've heard other people read his sermons out loud, and they've never been ones I connect to personally that I go, wow. Um, but what he has to say is always um, good. I, his style is not my style, but his words are, are, are uh, piercing oftentimes. But Spurgeon referred to Psalm 84 as one of the choicest of the Psalms, one of the most sweet of the Psalms of peace. And it really is true. What we're going to read this morning is a favorite psalm. You'll recognize it. Many of you will recognize it as a song you may have learned at one time or another. But it is a wonderful psalm. We're told in this psalm, it's titled as a psalm of the sons of Korah. And for some of you, you right away know who Korah was. And some of you, you think, I've heard that name before, but I really don't remember what it is or what the significance of it is. Korah was a man we read about in Numbers. If you remember when we went through Numbers uh, a couple years ago, Korah was a man referred to in Numbers. He was a member of the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi. He was in the priestly class of the Israelites, and he led a rebellion with a couple other guys against Moses and against Aaron and said they take too much authority on themselves. And uh, they had a big conflict that took place, and um, it didn't last very long. It lasted about a day, and within a day, 250 men were fried by fire from heaven, standing there with their censers, and their censers were melted their little things where they were holding incense. They just kind of vaporized. And, um, and then the ground opened up and swallowed up Korah and his family. And then a plague went through the community and um, about almost 15,000 people were killed by God as part of that rebellion. But we're also told in Numbers chapter 29 that the sons of Korah did not die in the events of that day that Korah's sons survived. Even though most of his family went down into the ground with him, the sons of Korah did not die. They survived. And they were included in a census made before the nation entered the promised land. And we have that census actually says that they did not die on the day that their father did. So I'd like, as we read this portion of Scripture this morning, I'd like you to keep in mind, once again, as we did when we went through one of the other sons of Korah Psalms, to keep in mind 
these men who are writing these songs. Keep in mind that story, the sons of Korah who were spared that day. Uh, Keep in mind the mercy of God that was shown to these people, uh, to these sons of Korah, the kindness of God, the grace of God in their lives. I want you also from that story to remember a phrase, something that Moses asked Korah that day as that rebellion began. Moses says to Korah and his companions, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? To bring you near to himself. Is that a a small thing to you, Korah? To do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near to him. Those were the words that Moses spoke to Korah. Speaking of being in the presence of God by that phrase, he's brought you near to him and he's brought you near to him so that you can serve others. Is that too small of a thing for you, Korah? Is that not enough? As we read Psalm 84, I want you to consider how the sons of Korah literally treasure the opportunity to be in God's presence, to be near to him. They seem to have learned something from that day. And there's another passage I'd like for you to keep in mind. It's found in 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 26. We're not going to look at it this morning, but in that passage, it's part of the story of David preparing for Solomon to build the temple. He is assigning duties to the tribe of Levi for how they will serve in the new temple. And in verse 17, we learn that the sons of Korah were not assigned to the music worship team of the temple. When we read these Psalms, there's 12 of them written by the sons of Korah. When we read these Psalms, it becomes natural for us to think, oh, they must have been the musicians in the temple. These are hymns. The sons of Korah wrote 12 hymns. So they must have had some function as musicians in the temple. And yet that was not their function. They did not lead in music. They were not involved in that responsibility at all. Instead, in 1 Chronicles 26, we read these words. Six Levites were assigned each day to the east gate, four to the north gate, four to the south gate, and two pairs to the storehouse. Six were assigned each day to the west gate, four to the gateway leading up to the temple, and two to the courtyard. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers from the clans of Korah and Merari. They were gatekeepers. The sons of Korah, who wrote 12 beautiful psalms for us, some of the most remembered and cherished psalms in the Christian church today, were gatekeepers. Those who were appointed gatekeepers were the sons of Korah, among others, and in time, they wrote this beautiful Psalm 84 as an expression of their joy in their work. That's what this is about. It's an expression of the joy that they had in their work. 
because God had brought them near to minister in his temple. So keep those things in mind as we read Psalm 84 together. I'll read it aloud, and I invite you to follow along in your Bible. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, which is probably a stringed instrument, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow nests for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, and they go through the valley of Baca, or tears. They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper or a gatekeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Because the Lord God is a sun and a shield, the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The temple that David tasked Solomon to build was magnificent. It was opulent. It was beautiful. It was located on a hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem where the building was situated in such a point that it could be seen pretty much from any point in the city. The highest point of the temple rose 85 feet in the air. And it was a beautiful thing to behold. Used in its construction was gold and silver and bronze and iron donated by King David. David's wealth staggers me. When you see what he did with with gold and how he gave it to Solomon and then says to him, there's more where that came from if you need it. If we took the quantity of the gold that David gave to the temple and changed its value into modern day value, the gold alone that David gave to the temple was worth, would be worth more than $205 billion in today's money. Just let that sink in for a moment. And David says, by the way, Solomon, if you need any more, there's plenty more where that came from. And then Solomon was wealthier than David as time went on. But my point in that is that gold turned up all over in the temple, on the temple, 
It was a beautiful place. And every day, that was the place where the sons of Korah went to work. Every day. They went to the gates and stood by the gates. As these writers speak of God's dwelling place, it's not just a beautiful place, but it was a place of refuge. In this poem, they speak of how it was a place where even the sparrow, the most insignificant of birds, could find a home. It wasn't a place just for the wealthy, but sparrows nested there. Now, my mind immediately went to like Menards and Walmart and Home Depot with the birds flying around your head and you're worried about that. Uh, that could come into play in a minute here, but, but, the, but the images, these birds had a place of refuge. They were safe. The swallow would rest and raise their young. It's interesting if you've, if you've watched birds. I love watching birds. Um, I used to live up in the north woods of Wisconsin where there were a lot of different birds that would migrate through and live there. And I would literally go out for walks in the woods with uh, my binoculars spent years following the call of one bird that I never figured out what it was. It would flit in the treetops, had this beautiful song that it would sing. I couldn't find the song on any recordings, uh, but I spent hours following that bird through the woods trying to find out what it was and never learned. But swallows are interesting birds if you've been around them. They, they like to fly low, they catch bugs, and they swoop, and they're always moving. Uh, what, what the what the sons of Korah reference is not their flight, but their rest. That these very active birds find a place to nest and bear their young and rest in the temple of God, God's dwelling place. It's a place of refuge. And the temple was a place of worship where the altars of God were located. Sinful man could come and offer sacrifice for sin and find acceptance with the God of heaven's armies. Anytime you come across the phrase God of hosts, it's speaking of God's armies, the angels. There's a song about angel armies, and I'm not real big on it overall, but... um, I don't have a criticism of it necessarily. It just, I'm not, I haven't listened to it enough to know what it's about actually. But I like the idea of angel armies because that is what God of hosts refers to. Because he's the leader of a massive army of angels. But the temple most most of all was a place of blessing. Not because of its design or its artwork or its opulence and how that could move a man's soul. But it was a place of blessing because it was the place where the all-powerful, completely righteous person of God met with sinful, weak humans. In the story of the tabernacle originally being built at the end of Exodus and it's completed, and we read the story of how the cloud of God, the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, came in and rested in the temple, in the tabernacle, and the whole tabernacle was filled with the glory of God so that men had to back out of it. And then when Solomon's temple is completed and the same thing happens and God's presence fills the temple, it's an awesome sight. There is a very sad day in Ezekiel when Ezekiel watches that 
pillar of fire and cloud lift off of the temple, move away from the city and leave. And God has abandoned his people. He no longer dwells with them. He's no longer present with them. But until that point, every day, the people of God could see God's presence and these gatekeepers every day knew the blessing of being near to God who was holy and unrighteous people being able to be near to him. And as the writers of this psalm reflect on the goodness of the temple, of being in the temple, at the temple, near to the presence of God, their heart cries out, a single day in your courts is better than a thousand in the tents of the wicked. What they meant by that was just to be near you, God, for one day is better than all the pleasures that this world could offer. The tents of the wicked is the idea of the full satisfaction of the flesh. Everything I could possibly desire to please my flesh. A thousand days of that doesn't compare to one day in God's presence. They loved what they did, and they loved where they did it. Many of the writers who comment on this psalm linger a moment on the word doorkeeper or gatekeeper because it's important for us to understand the significance of that word, what their role was. And maybe it's better to say it this way, that it's not the significance of the word or the significance of their role, but how insignificant their role was. These were probably the least significant workers in the temple. Part of their job involved some level of protection kind of like a security guard limiting who can come and who who can't come through those gates. But it's generally agreed that their job was not just that, but something even lower. Say security guards aren't low. Have you been to college campus and you have security guards on the college campus before they had police departments? You know how everybody views the security guys. They're all Barney Fifes. That's what they call them. So these guys were not prestigious. They had a low task, but their task was even lower and more menial than we may think, at least in human terms. To put it in modern lingo, they were the janitors of the temple. They were the cleanup crew. And that takes me back to the idea of Walmart and the sparrows. Sparrows do bad things inside of buildings. That's why we like to keep them in cages if we have them as pets, which I don't know anybody who has a sparrow for a pet, but any bird. The idea of a parrot walking around through somebody's house all day to me is disgusting because I know what birds do. If you have one and I offended you, you can enjoy that all you want and you feel happy about it, but I don't want them in my house. But these guys would have been the ones who have to clean up what the sparrows and the swallows did in the temple. And how did they feel about what they do? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. 
one day with you is better than a thousand of all the pleasures that a human could enjoy. They loved what they did. They express here how intensely their very being loved going to work every day. It was to them a dream job. It wasn't a dream job because of the responsibilities. It wasn't a dream job because of its significance in human eyes. It was a dream job because it was where they wanted to be. All the rest was just incidental. But they wanted to be near to God. They wanted to be in God's presence. And their job gave them that every single day. Some of you may be familiar with James Hamilton, a modern theologian. He puts it this way, the overriding message of Psalm 84 is that there is no place more desirable than the presence of God. And what the psalmist really enjoys is the presence of God. They may have been overlooked by humanity, but in God's presence, they enjoyed the blessing of God. And again, it wasn't because of how beautiful the building was that they wanted to be there. It wasn't because of how peaceful the building was that they wanted to be there. Those things were true of the temple because it was God's dwelling place, but the reason they wanted to be there was to be in God's dwelling place. Over the years, as a pastor here and as a pastor back in Tama, I had a few people who would show up at the office and ask if they could come and come into the auditorium and pray. And like you, I would have one train of thought going in my head while another train of thought came out of my mouth. You know how somebody says something and you're thinking what you're really thinking, but you know you can't say that, so you just keep it, and then you say something else that's less offensive. But they would say, is it okay if I just go in and and pray? And I was like, sure, go ahead. But in my mind, I'm thinking, why? Why? And the idea is that to some degree or another, God's more present in the auditorium of the church, like the old temple. The idea is in some way that this is a sacred space where I can go and be closer to God. We could argue and argue about whether or not this is a sacred space. From a, from a strict definition, sacred refers to something that is re, re, uh, reserved or connected with religion, with God, or a God. So that's a strict definition. And with a strict definition, I, I guess I would have to concede that this is a sacred space, that it's connected. But I don't, I don't think of it as a sacred space. I come in here, day after day during the week. I walk in the building. When, in, when nobody's been here and the doors haven't been opened after a couple days, it starts to have a funny smell. It, it just does. 
and and if you went back in the offices right now where nobody's been since Friday, you'll notice that funny smell. My, I have a relative, I won't say which one, but I have a relative who, who would tell me that that's a demon and that whenever you smell a funny smell, it's a demon. So I don't know about the people who work at General Mills or Quaker or those places, but there's some funky smells that come out of there. So I don't know what's going on in there. I like Crunchberry Day, but there's other days where it's not so great. But it, it's, it's just a building. That's all this is. It's a building. It's a nice building. It's a much bigger building than we need at times. It gets a lot of use by different groups. But it's a building. It's not the temple, but some people seem to think it is. I grew up in Denver. There was Denver Baptist Bible Temple. And they confused that with the building. That was the building, the temple. And we talk about going to church. And I use that same lingo. I get it that historically the buildings have been called the church. But it's not really an accurate idea. This building has been set aside for the gathering of God's people and the worship of God, generally speaking, except on the times when we have diaper wars, and maybe then that's not... And, and we've got a couple of visitors who are wondering what diaper wars are. The guy in the light blue shirt right there, you can ask him what diaper wars are. But uh, the lights go out and diapers fly. Um, I don't, that just kills the whole sacred space idea, doesn't it? It just ruins it. But we have set this aside as a place to gather and a place to worship together. But this building is not a modern temple. It's just a building. And it is not the dwelling place of God. You do realize that, right? This building is not the dwelling place of God, except at certain times. At certain times, God does dwell here. In the sense of dwelling with his people, When God's people gather, God is with them because God is in them. Do you realize that you never have to pray, God, there are two or three of us gathered here in your name, and so we ask that you be with us. I know that gets used a lot that way. But what it really is speaking of is what we call today church discipline. An agreement of two or three who are in agreement that this discipline needs to take place and they are acknowledging the authority of God with them in that time. Go read Matthew 18 past the place where we usually stop and you'll come to realize that's the idea. That God, we are enacting discipline and we understand that because two or three of us agree on this. You stand with us in heaven as we stand here on earth. How, how do I know that this is the dwelling place of God when we gather? 
because the temple of God today is not a building. The temple of God today is what? Where does God dwell today? Not a trick question. I'll let you know that. It's easy. Where does God dwell today? Hmm? With his people. How? Indwells them in his people. There's a, there's a fascinating little thread from the temple. In Ezekiel, late in Ezekiel, he gets a vision of a new temple. And they go through and measure it. An angel measures it with them. There's, there's some jams to doorways in this new temple that are nine feet thick. Just the door jam. Nine feet thick. But as the, he describes the temple... God's presence comes back to the temple and water. There's this really weird story of water starting to seep out, trickle out, a spring of water trickling out from underneath the south side of the temple. And it begins to flow and as it goes forward, as it goes away from the temple, it gets wider and it gets deeper. And then we come to Jesus in John 4 with this woman and she's a Samaritan woman. She's a bad person in the Jewish culture. And they're talking about water, and Jesus is talking about water that you'll never thirst again. And she says, give me that water that I never thirst again. And he speaks to her and begins to speak about water coming inside of her that bubbles up from springs. It ties back to this image of a new temple with the water flowing out of it and telling her that water is going to bubble up out of you and flow out of you. And as we study the Bible, we begin to realize that those images of water refer to the Holy Spirit and His presence. And we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul asks these people, in an almost in bewilderment, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And in chapter 3, he adds, God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What's fascinating about Paul's theology is that we individually are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but he's also speaking collectively to these people. He's speaking in plurals. You all are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Together, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Individually and collectively, when we leave this building, the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost goes in multiple directions. When we come back to this building and we gather, or when we gather around food at someone's house uh, that are believers, wherever we go individually and when we come together collectively, we are the temple of God. So this morning, God's dwelling place is here in us together. So when we speak of Northbrook Baptist Church, we're speaking of individuals indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we're speaking collectively of a group of people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God's dwelling place is in his people individually 
and collectively. So I would argue that those who by faith place their trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sin live life every day in the presence of the person of God. And I would also conclude that as the dwelling place of God, whatever we do in service to our King Jesus, which should be everything we do, everything we do should be in service to our King. That service is significant to God. A message from Psalm 84 is that not only is God's dwelling place beautiful because God is present, but every act of service in God's dwelling place, in the presence of God, is significant. These gatekeepers, these janitors are significant because it's being done for God. It is being done in the presence of God. And it's with that perspective that James Montgomery Boyce once wrote that God is interested in the simplest tasks of the simplest men. And that's what I want to focus in on this morning. In a few moments this morning, we're going to be formally installing Ray Cross as an elder. And I'm excited about it. When Jason came up after we did the vote and he was trying to tell me the vote between my bad hearing and what I was expecting, because I was expecting him to give me numbers, you know, like it was so many for, so many against. And so I'm not hearing him real well. And, and I'm reading, trying to read his lips for numbers and he's saying something that isn't numbers. And so I, I, I said, what was it? And he's trying to whisper it to me and I still wasn't getting it because I was waiting for numbers. And then I figured out he was saying unanimous. And I can't tell you how that warmed my soul. Ray got a better vote than I did when I came here as pastor. <laughs> But I'm really happy because what it tells me is you, you recognize Ray's person, his character, and his service in the presence of God over a very long time. Ray has been here forever. I, I, I would joke that Ray was the original member, but he wasn't. How many years have you been here, Ray? 29 years. Just let that rest in you for a little bit. 29 years in one place through three different pastors. It just doesn't happen anymore. There was a time when people used to stay in a church because it was their church and they could outlast the pastor. I actually had somebody tell me that at our last church. She, she didn't particularly care for me and she told me that <clears throat> she was here before I came and she was going to be there when I left. I won. She left. I won. Pretty proud of that. 
the average stay of a church member, an involved church member these days is seven years. The average stay of a pastor these days is five years. 29 years. He's the archivist. He was emailing some of us pictures this last week of this building being built because of the crack in the floor and they were trying to see if they could figure anything out from the photographs as to how it was built. If you want to know a record from the past, Ray probably has it in his attic. He loves Northbrook as an organization and he loves Northbrook as a people. You know, the thing is, is that as I have been a pastor now for over 20 years, I've learned that in the eyes of many, the elder is the ultimate. The elder is the most important position in today's local church. There are a lot of people who aspire to it. I've had people tell me I want to be an elder. And, and I've said many times, if you want to be an elder, don't tell me you want to be an elder because that's going to be a knock against you. Show me that you are an elder and you won't have to ask. Some I've met over the years who are slighted when they're not chosen for the office. There are wars in the church over the issue over whether women should be elders. And I know of churches divided because of those who grasp after the office. Recently, in the last year, I know of a church that a guy showed up, joined the church, told the pastor he wanted to be an elder. And they told him that they didn't think he was ready for it. He tried to create factions. He took some people with him when he left. Went to another church. That church just called that pastor. The pastor from the new church called that pastor from the previous church. Putting out an SOS message because the guy was doing the same thing in that church. After 20 years as an elder, I would warn you, if that's your mindset, that you do not know what you are grasping and longing for. Often people want to be elders or deacons because they see it as a position of power over people and really it's a position of giving yourself and sacrificing for people. We've gotten a wrong idea of elders and how we should serve in the presence of God because we have forgotten that God gifts us and leads us to follow Christ, to take up his cross, to deny ourselves. We have forgotten that the chief shepherd, Jesus, was lowly and gentle of heart, that he served people in the lowest of places, going to the lowest of people, and died in the lowest of places as a common criminal. We think being an elder is the ultimate, but I would remind you that often the greatest works of God are accomplished in the most inconspicuous places as he works through some of the most inconspicuous people. I'd ask you this morning, 
Is it greater to be an elder who stands in a pulpit and gets criticized for talking or praying too long, or to be a man who has given of his time and energy over the years to sit with teens and help guide them to Christ, to love Christ and follow him for the rest of their lives? The man I speak of is Jason Kautz, who for years has invested himself in teens. He wasn't expecting me to say anything this morning. But I am so thankful for a man who loves God's word and loves Christ and has shepherded teens sometimes as many as 40 at a time, sometimes less than that, talking with them about the issues of life from a biblical perspective so that when they become adults, they know what they believe. There are times when I think that that is probably going to bear more fruit than anything I do. Is it greater, is it more important that a person lead adults in Bible study or is it just as great to invest oneself in the lives of five to 12 year old children shaping and molding their basic thinking about God and his redemption? They're both important. Is one greater? I stand before you this morning as a pastor and I've told you this story before but I stand before you as a pastor because an insignificant man named Rufus Hobbs shared the gospel on a Sunday morning in kids' Sunday school class, and God used what he said to pierce my heart. And as a six-year-old, I can't hardly remember anything from being a six-year-old. I remember very few people from that time period. But as a six-year-old, Rufus Hobbs was the director of it. He did a story with us as kids that just pierced me. And I went to my teacher, Mrs. Clinton, and I said to her, I need to talk to you about what Mr. Hobbs said. I'm not saved. At six years old. I'm pretty thankful for people who teach kids. And now Terry and I are doing the kids' ministry. And we love it. And there's no pretense with kids. There's no agendas with kids other than to play, you know, and get their treats. But they're just great. And you're teaching them very basic things. Shaping them. Pointing them to Christ. Is it greater to enjoy worship in the company of the gathering or to periodically sacrifice corporate worship to hold and play with a young child so that their tired parents can find encouragement and focused worship? It seems so insignificant to be back in that room, away from all the people, with a little kid who's either asleep or crying at you or has a stinky, dirty diaper. I don't like stinky, dirty diapers. But could that be like the sons of Korah? Serving in what's considered an insignificant way and loving it 
because you know you're in the presence of God and you know that those people are being blessed and getting a respite. could ask the question this way. Are you happy to be a gatekeeper in the house of God because it is service to the one who is eternally near you and he has put you in a place of his blessing and favor? When we install Ray as an elder this morning, what, what, what fills my heart is that for 29 years, he's been content to be a gatekeeper. Over the eight years that I have known Ray and Kim, I have grown to love them. There is much gatekeeping that they have done here at Northbrook that most people don't know about. Most of you have been touched personally by their service to you, and especially when you were in a difficult place. I have said this before, I will be forever grateful to them for taking our daughter into their house for nine months. And actually were beat up by her. and kept her in their house. But there are other things that they have done that have not been so visible, like taking care of plugged toilets, fixing broken toilets, replacing broken faucets, changing light bulbs, sweeping floors, mopping the building, because it needed to be done. And they've done many other insignificant gatekeeping tasks because it was their heart to serve their God and to serve you. And I would say that they're not perfect people, but they have been faithful in the temple of God we call Northbrook. And I think that their example is something for us to follow. They haven't done it for attaboys, pats on the back, great people, you're wonderful people. They do it because they love God. They do it because they love you. The dwelling place of God is a beautiful thing. And when we look at Kim and Ray, we see a beautiful dwelling place of God because of what God has done in them. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so it is legitimate for us to point to people who follow Christ and say there's an example to follow. My prayer as we move forward as people is that we will be those who realize the presence of God and love to live in the presence of God. And my prayer for us as well is that out of love for God's presence, we will be people who are okay with being insignificant and that we will serve our wonderful Savior who emptied himself and gave himself, loving us to the death so that we might flourish as God's dear children. How lovely is your dwelling place. 
I would rather be a gatekeeper for one day in God's presence than a thousand days in the tents of the wicked. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's it's difficult to take the beautiful words of a poet and bring them to the level of everyday life. To a certain extent, we love poetry because it seems to transcend the humdrum and difficulties of daily life. And yet from the the words of these sons of Korah, we are reminded of your goodness and your greatness and the blessing of your presence in us. I am reminded of the reality that you have come to live in a broken vessel with no beauty of its own but you have made it a lovely place because it is where you dwell and Father I ask that you would help us to pursue keeping in step with the spirit so that his beauty the beauty of Jesus can be seen in us even more. And I pray that you would give us a love for your people and give us a love for people in general to the point that we are willing to die to self. and serve in insignificant ways even with insignificant people. Father, help us to celebrate where we see your gracious work happening in the lives of others. (coughs) Happening in our own lives. Help us to see that work as a signpost along the road of what it means to follow Christ. And help us to have a heart that wants to become more like Him. Father, I pray that you would give us a sense of your presence, especially in the times when we feel alone. Help us to recognize your work around us and in us. And help us to see the opportunities to speak of you and to serve others for you. In your son's name, amen.